Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Friday, August 6th. The Senate is still in town trying to finish work on a bipartisan infrastructure package. And the fight to control the Senate in 2023 is just starting to heat up. Joining us to discuss the landscape as it stands here on the brink of August recess is Jessica Taylor, the Senate and Governor Race Editor at the newly renamed Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. She's also a senior author for the Almanac of American Politics. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Kyle, I'm really looking forward to speaking with Jessica about the Almanac. I have every edition of the Almanac dating to 1972. In fact, over my shoulder on my bookshelf, I have the 72 and 74 editions. Looking forward to this interview with Jessica. Great. Well, let's get to our conversation with her now. Okay, we've got Jessica Taylor here at a special time for the Almanac of American Politics, which is set to release its newest volume. Jessica and I met as researchers on that book, working out of a closet in the Watergate a long, long time ago. Uh, welcome back to the show, Jessica. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Yeah, that was my very first job out of college. So exciting wow. time. Wow. <laughs> well, uh, definitely some great memories in that windowless room where, where we looked for the latest political news before releasing uh, that edition of the book. Um, but I want to I want to talk more about the Almanac a little bit later. But I want to start with the Senate because you updated your race ratings last month, and I was I was struck by two things. the The first was that the cupboard of competitive contests looks pretty bare. Um, all but nine seats are safe for the party that holds them. And then the the second thing that I was struck by was that those nine top races are basically evenly split between the parties. Um, of course, the three toss-up seats, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, they're all held by Republicans. So this is a long way of asking. Do you see the Senate majority is less vulnerable for Democrats than their House majority because of those three toss-ups? Um, I do slightly. I mean, when we look historically, of course, we know that in midterm elections, the first pre- president's first midterm election, that their party typically loses seats. But that really affects the House more than the Senate. And we also have the fact, of course, that right now, um, it's a redistricting year, too. And Republicans, of course, um, control more of the district line drawing and different things. So that gives them also um, a, a boost. But in the Senate, I think, you know, ultimately, which third of the seats are up matter. And so we have slightly more Republican seats that are up than Democrats, 20 seats to 14. But Republicans are dealing with a lot of open seats, five open seats, while Democrats don't have any. And yeah, you're right. We have two of those in toss-up right now, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. And um, then the other toss-up is uh, Ron Johnson, Wisconsin, which was a race that we moved. Now, we typically don't start any incumbent in toss-up, so that's one reason he started out and lean Republican. But Johnson, if he runs, which he has not made that decision yet, and the NRSC and Rick Scott are very much waiting for that. Um, he would be the only Republican incumbent running in a seat that Biden won. And Pennsylvania is the only other state that is up that was won by um, the Republicans hold that was won by Biden. Now, there are no Democratic seats up this time that Trump won. So we have that. And then, again, the other open seat that we have in lean Republican that could – that 
Republicans were not expecting to have to defend is Ohio with um, with the surprise uh, retirement there of Rob Portman. And I think what matters most for Republicans right now is recruitment, because, you know, the uh, the two senators that should be the most vulnerable, um, Mark Kelly in Arizona and Raphael Warnock in Georgia, just both won special elections, have to turn around and run again. States that Biden carried very narrowly. They both had um, Kelly had a more comfortable win than Warnock did, but, you know, Warnock won in that runoff. Um, but both of those primaries have really become sort of clusters. And there's a real concern that they don't they won't have a really strong nominee there. We're already seeing specifically in Georgia, you know, Trump has already endorsed Herschel Walker, the famed college football star and University of Georgia star there. But he doesn't live in the state. We're seeing a lot of oppo come out on him about his um, you know, things that he did in his past and mental health and different things and, um, you know, threatening his wife with a gun. Um this isn't coming from Democrats. It's coming from Republicans because they very much worry that he could put this seat in jeopardy. And the same thing in Arizona, you know, there's a lot of Republicans running um, in that seat, the attorney general, Mark Bronovich, um, Jim Lamon, who's a wealthy businessman, um, Blake Masters, uh, um, you know, a venture capitalist there who has Peter Thiel's money. But, you know, really the candidate that I think probably would have been the strongest is that Republicans still want, national Republicans, Trump doesn't want, is the term-limited governor there, Doug Ducey, who won re-election handily in 2018 at the same time that Kirsten Sinema um, also won in 2018. So, you know, you have Trump kind of meddling in these primaries, and it really could end up with um, some problematic or weaker nominees. Uh, Jessica, I'd like to ask you about the Pennsylvania Senate race for the seat of retiring Republican Pat Toomey as we speak on Friday, August the 6th. Democratic Congressman Connor Lamb from southwestern Pennsylvania has just entered that race with uh, crowded primaries on both sides. Um, what uh, What's your read on that race, Jessica? I think this is a really true toss-up, but I do think of the seats that that Democrats have a chance to flip, Pennsylvania is their best shot. Again, Biden won it, and it's an open seat. Um, and Republicans have a somewhat weak field, too. Um, Sean Parnell, who ran against Lamb, came very close there, is probably um, the candidate who might get Trump's endorsement. He already has Donald Trump Jr.'s endorsement. Um, you have another Republican that kind of surprised people who ran and lost handling in another congressional seat. Um, in the Philly suburbs, Kathy Barnett, who raised a lot of money. And then you have Jeff Bartos, um, who ran for lieutenant governor in 2018. He's probably seen as the least Trumpian candidate and the one that could sort of move more toward the middle. But um, the primaries on both sides are really indicative of the sort of identity crisis that each party faces, I think. For Republicans, it's how much are they going to tie themselves to Trump in a state that he lost. Of course, most of the candidates still contend that he did not actually lose Pennsylvania, which we know is false. Um, on the Democratic side, though, it's, um, you know, do they go with a more centrist candidate like Connor Lamb? I think Lamb's um, entrance is a really big deal in this seat because, you know, national public, national Democrats, rather, that I've talked to, they, they sort of see Lamb as maybe their best shot. You know, he's won competitive House races before there. You know, he was the first one to slip a special election um, in 2017, after Trump was elected, um, he, he's he's a centrist. He's a veteran, um, a former prosecutor. So they kind of like that profile. Um, 
you mentioned he's there from Western Pennsylvania, from the Pittsburgh area. Well, he shares a geographic base with probably the other frontrunner in the contest, um, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. They really could not be any different, both looks-wise and I think approach-wise. You know, Fetterman is 6'8 and towers and has this goatee and tattooed, and um, he's really running as a really unabashed progressive and, you know, hoping that that sort of – does a progressive message, does it turn out the base? That's sort of what they're saying. But, you know, we've often seen that, you know, backing Biden and the more sort of um, electable candidate we've seen one, as we saw happen, you know, in not only in the 2020 presidential primary and Virginia governor's primary, I think this year, but we saw it, of course, this past week in Ohio too. So um, what happens to when they share a geographic base there, they're both going to be sort of competing for rural areas. Um, the third candidate to watch in Pennsylvania, I think, is Val Arcus. She's a, Macom- Mac- she's a Montgomery County um, commissioner. And uh, the ra- races like this are typically won in the Philly suburbs. So she's Montgomery County is the third largest seat, one of those sort of collar counties uh, uh, around um, Philadelphia. And, you know, Lamb and Fetterman are going to have to appeal to the suburbs, too. And I think Lamb could have a better appeal, though, in the suburbs than Fetterman might be able to. And because 2022 is a midterm election year, it means we'll have elections for governor in most states. Uh, we even have that recall election coming up very soon in California. What are a few states you're watching, Jessica, that look like they'll have compelling elections for governor? On the Democratic side, um, I think the most vulnerable incumbent that you have is Laura Kelly in Kansas. You know, she won in 2018 against um, Chris Kobach, a very damaged nominee. Can she win in a red state again? Of course, we do sometimes see that. Um, it's much easier to win a governor's race in a red state than it is a Senate race because, of course, Democrats targeted Kansas in 2020 and fell very short there. Um, Pennsylvania also has an open seat. So, you know, there's a real big, big primaries on both sides there. Can um, But I think, you know, Democrats hold it right now. Tom Wolf is uh, is term limited. So we'll see there. Um, I, you know, and a lot of these states that are going to be Senate battlegrounds also are going to have competitive governor's races. You know, in Wisconsin, we have Tony Evers rated as, as lean D. Um, you know, the t- toss-ups, though, Republicans are going to have trouble holding, I think, a couple of open seats. So um, Maryland, Larry Hogan, um, term limited. We actually have that one rated lean D. So I think Democrats, that's a really prime opportunity to pick up because it's, there's no really Republican running right now that I think could win a primary and sort of have that cross-party appeal that Hogan has been able to. Arizona, also an open seat. So another place where it's the Senate battleground and a gubernatorial battleground. Um, uh, Brian Kemp in Georgia, I think he's the most vulnerable Republican incumbent that's going to be running, of course. Uh, a primary challenge against him that, Kemp, that you know Trump has encouraged seems to have fizzled a little bit. He sort of um, bolstered his c- credentials with conservatives, you know, after the um, all-star game and different things was, uh, pu- was pulled out of Georgia due to their voting rights bill. Um, so that, that's a, that's one to watch, especially because we expect it to be a rematch of the 2018 race, um, with Stacey Abrams getting in. Um, we have that one raised lean Republican right now, simply because there's no officially announced Democrat, but as soon as Abrams gets in, you can imagine that that will change. Um, DeSantis also, um, you know, his numbers kind of, they've gotten better, um, and, you know, he's clearly someone in the mix for 2024, sort of maybe the top of the list. So what does his reelection look like? I do think some of the candidates against him, former Governor Charlie Crist and um, State Agriculture Commissioner um, Nikki Freed, are, kind of haven't run really strong campaigns yet. We'll see. We'll see if that changes. 
And, um, you know, what is this Delta surge that's happening in Florida? How does that um, affect him? Uh, I feel like I can't talk about governor's races, though, and not talk about the one that we moved this morning um, and that was sort of big in the news this week, which is um, New York. <laughs> uh, Andrew Cuomo and the very serious sexual harassment allegations against him. Um, he has not said whether he will run for a fourth term. Um, you know, there's sort of a third term curse that people talk about. He, he won his third term, but, um, you know, with these allegations against him, he's, his press conference this week was clearly defiant and um, it doesn't sound like he's going to resign anytime soon, but it looks all but certain when you look at the makeup of the legislature, state legislature, even though it's overwhelmingly democratic, that there's a, I think it's really, really strong chance that he's going to be impeached. So that would leave Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul um, as former Congresswoman who won a special election in 2011, but then lost in 2012. Um, she's from Erie County, so the western part of the state. It would leave her as the current governor. Um, you know, uh, she'd be the first female governor of New York. Um, she would be expected to run, I think, in the primary, certainly. Um, Tish James, who's the attorney general who, you know, ordered the in independent investigation that led to these, um, you know, a corroboration of these allegations against Cuomo. And, you know, he's, he really could face, they're looking into criminal charges too. So it's not just the political repercussions that he could face as well. Um, she's long been sort of seen as eyeing that. Of course, Cuomo was attorney general before he became governor. Um, we moved it from solid to likely Democrats, which means that we are just watching it. It doesn't mean it's competitive yet, but Democrats I talked to in the state, even if Cuomo's gone, they do worry that that could sort of hurt them a little bit. Um, the Republican frontrunner there right now is Lee Zeldin, a congressman from uh, Long Island, but he's, you know, a Trump acolyte. Um, and I'm not sure that plays well, even there in Trump's home state that he lost pretty handily. But, um, you know, certainly a lot of uncertainty that's been pushed into that race. So we moved it from solid to likely, D. Kathy Hochul, former guest on Down Ballot Accounts. Just want to throw that out there. Um, all right. Back to the Senate uh, real quick. It feels like there's still a lot in the air on the Republican side. You've mentioned some of it. Arizona, I think. They were hoping uh, Ducey would get in there. Ron Johnson, we don't know if he's running in Wisconsin, of course. Uh, we're still waiting on candidates in Georgia, Nevada, New Hampshire. Uh, Chris Sununu, he may not announce till early next year if he's going to run. Um, and, and we don't know what the heck's going to happen in the Ohio primary, um, which is, you know, a race, a race to the Trump um, so, but what are what are your biggest question marks? The the things that are going to affect uh, the landscape the most. What what are you waiting on? What are you wondering about? Um, I do think it's a big question. I'm waiting on what Ron Johnson does. Certainly, I think that really could change things. Um, you know, he's someone that's sort of gone off the deep end this past year too. Um, you know, he spread COVID misinformation. Um, you know about the virus and about the vaccine. Um, he's really doubled down on. Um, the, on sort of uh, questioning what happened on January 6th. Um, and, uh, you know, does that hurt him? I mean, Wisconsin is safe. It, of course, was closer than expected, but Biden still won it. Um, how does that affect things there? I mean, Wisconsin, I think, is one of the most evenly divided states. I think if he doesn't run, um, Mike Gallagher, a congressman, a veteran, has been sort of the name I've heard the most. So that's one to watch. Um, yeah, I mean, and who, I really think, Arizona and Georgia is going to depend on what candidates they're able to get. I do know that even though Ducey has said he will not run, Republicans are not giving up. The 
Um, the filing deadline there is not until June, I believe. So there's plenty of time. I, I always do not, I, I don't rule a candidate out from running until the filing deadline has passed. Um, we had plenty of candidates last cycle that said that they were not going to run until the bitter end and then did. Um, Steve Bullock in Montana um, mm. uh, filed there at the very end. They were able to convince John Hickenlooper in Colorado to run. So, you know, that, that's sort of my rule of thumb. But Republicans I've talked to do believe that they can still convince Ducey. Um, but Trump's going to go after him. And it's just sort of friendly fire there on that side. Um, what happens in Georgia with uh, Herschel Walker? Um, you know, Gary Black, the agriculture commissioner, is already running there. He came out with an ad this week essentially attacking Herschel Walker for not living in Georgia. Um, so that's a big thing. And then, yeah, I think we're waiting on, I mean, Chris Nunu, I really think if, if he decides to run, that becomes a toss up race. And that actually might be uh, Republicans' best chance to flip a Democratic seat. But, you know, Republicans, as I mentioned, you're right, the, the map is pretty evenly split. We have four competitive races um, for Democrats versus uh, five for Republicans. But of those five, three are in toss up. So I think Republicans, uh, they've got some work to do. Um, certainly, they have, again, we see an average of about between one to two seats flip um, in, a, in a first term presidential midterm. Um, and it's easier, of course, to not, we, we see such a correlation between um, presidential results and Senate, re Senate results in presidential years. Um, past two cycles, only Susan Collins has been able to defy that. It's a little more common, um, although not that common in, in midterm years. Um, but, uh, you know, there's open seats, North Carolina as well as one a primary on that side that, um, you know, really sort of between Trump's endorsed candidate Ted Budd there and um, the former governor, Pat McCrory, at this point, I think it's more of a two-man race. Mark Walker's been edged out a little bit there. Um, but Republicans, you know, if they want to add to their majority, they have to protect those seats they have. And, you know, we're at 50-50, so every little single seat matters, too. Yeah, well, so we do have a lot to wait on. There's also, we haven't seen the messaging around these infrastructure bills, um, even assuming they both get through and, and advance uh, and President Biden signs them. The messaging wars around that, I think, is going to really define um, at least the early part of the election year and and um, probably uh, into Election Day. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about the Almanac. I'm guessing anyone listening to this podcast like me has at least a few of these on their bookshelf. Um, so when's it coming out? Anything special we should be on the lookout for? Anything special about this edition? Well, it should be out in the, in the next few Really, the next week, I believe, we're, you know, sort of just waiting on the shipment. So, you know, you can go to um, the Almanac of American Politics dot com uh, and order. We're also having on August 18th an online Zoom event. It's moderated by my boss, Amy Walter, um, to we're going to be talking about you know, some of the interesting profiles that we write, sort of, you know, commemorating the 50th edition. Um, so that's from 4.30 to 6.30. Anyone can sign up. So if you register for the event, um, you you can get 25% off the Almanac. Um, and the code is EVENT22. So again, go to thealmanacofamericanpolitics.com. You'll see a link there to sign up. 25% um, off ordering an Almanac from there and free registration um, to watch the event with code EVENT22. Um, and then, you know, again, it's the 50th anniversary. So we have a special look back by um, the founder, Michael Barone, sort of, of how he got there. Um, he founded, he had this idea with um, Grant Ujafusa when they were both at Harvard. 
um, because uh, you know, there was um, a lot of anti-war protesters going on there, and they thought it might be helpful, and people would be interested in sort of profiles of members of Congress in each district to contact people. Um, they also talk about how they um, how they really sort of got information because in 1971, really, when they were doing this, you can't go to the internet, you can't find things. So they would go to the newsstand there, um, you know, in Cambridge in Boston, and each week sort of get the major papers and scour through them. Um, I know that, you know, the process that we use to research the Almanac has, you know, differed from even when Kyle and I were doing it. You know, we would go on LexisNexis and websites and we would print things out and highlight things and we would give them these big folders that, you know, we would schlep to the authors and different things. I'm sure you remember that, Kyle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now everything is digital. You know, our, we get all of the research on Google Docs and everything. Uh, so it's all online right now. Um, we save a lot of trees that way, more environmentally friendly for sure. Um, so even that has changed. So everything is sort of tracked online um, and, and different things. So, um, you know, I think for me, I wrote, um, I, I wrote almost half of those Senate profiles this year. And, um, you know, a lot of the research happens right before the election. You know, we sort of wait on the candidates and in competitive races to see. Um, but I had found myself having to do a lot of other research because a lot of these senators, what happened on January 6th changed things so much. Um, for instance, I did Bill Cassidy's profile. I did um, Richard Burr's profile. So those votes were really sort of front and center. Um, I did Ron Johnson's profile. He was thankfully one of the last ones I had to do given that we were going alphabetically and you know he was saying something every day that was controversial um, about the insurrection about COVID so there was a lot to sort of update in his biography as well. Well I want, I want to congratulate you Jessica and your team on the publication of the 50th anniversary edition of the Almanac uh, Magisterial Achievement um, Summer of Odd Numbered Years for uh, a political nerd like me is a great time because that's when the Almanac comes out. Um, what did you find kind of most enjoyable about being a senior author for this edition? Is there a fun fact or two about a member or a district that you uncovered during your work? Do you have a favorite uh, congressional district? Um, I worked on congressional districts last time, but I did all the Senate ones. Um, I think probably when I did do the congressional districts, my favorite ones to do were the ones that I'd lived in. I'm from Tennessee's first congressional district. So I think I was able to last cycle, um, you know, add a little bit of my own knowledge there. And then where I went to college, which was South Carolina's fourth district in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, so those I think were fun for me to do the home ones. I always love doing the home, you know, the, I sort of claim both Tennessee and South Carolina as home. So those were always fun to do. I mean, uh, Lindsey Graham kind of got a big overhaul last cycle, um, <laughs> you know, with everything, him going to being an ally of Trump. That one was a really hard one to redo last time. This time it was a little less of a lift, but certainly he had a lot of things going on. Um, you know, we had brand new profiles, for instance, for my Tennessee senators, Marsha Blackburn elected in 2018, and then, you know, Bill Haggerty in, in 2020. Um, it's hard for me to believe that Lamar Alexander is not in the Senate anymore. He was governor when I was born, so I always remember him being in some type of office. Um, you know, Ben Sass was another one that, um, with the vote, that was really interesting. Um, I think that, again, to me, the most, I was having to fit in a lot of what happened, and that I think is, you know, you look back on these, I think, to give a snapshot of what was happening politically in time, too. Um, you know, it is hard because we can't fit everything in there. Of course, we have to cut things out, um, older things. But I think that one of the big takeaways that is when people in the future look back at this edition, 
Um, we'll have to see. To me, it was really important to capture what these senators did, what they said, because I think January 6th was such a consequential moment in American history and political history and how they reacted and what they said to me was really important to get in there. Um, I'm also really proud. We know we have, um, I think just political analysis, unfortunately, when you get into it is it's a very male dominated field, you know, um, of course, a political report, we have um, Amy Walter that just took over as um, publisher and editor in chief. Um, you know, Amy and I are, are one of some of the few women in that field. Um, I've always really looked up to her as a mentor and I'm so thankful to work under her. I learn something new from her every day. Um, but it, it sort of is, um, you know, and the Almanac sort of, I think has been that way too. I'm actually the first woman ever to serve a senior author and in the 50 year history, I'll be the first woman that's ever listed on the cover. So for me, that's a huge deal. We have two other women contributing authors and that we're hoping, um, you know, in talking with uh, Rich Cohen, who is the editor right now, we really want to diversify our staff. That's something we're really trying to do. So um, Abby Livingston from uh, Texas Tribune is, has also been a contributing author, as has um, our new contributing author that we have this year, um, Allie Mutnick from Politico. I mean, she used to be my intern um, at NPR, so I was really happy to be able to bring her on board. So, you know, we're really trying to diversify it, really make it a book that I think is for, you know, the 21st century and I think really reflects, I mean, this is America. I think that, you know, we're trying to make our writing staff reflect more of America too. Allie worked for me as well, and uh, we know Abby. We've had her on the show. Uh, really, really great folks. I'm glad they're involved as well. Um, all right, we'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, just as a reminder to listeners, you can go to the Almanac of American Politics.com, and the code was EVENT22 to get a discount. Jessica, thanks as always for your time. Thanks for having me. This is Down Valley Counts. That's it for us today. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020 before endorsing Joe Biden. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you soon. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, Citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.